Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The Prime Minister is in intensive care, a reminder of just how serious COVID-19 can be. All of us at the IFG wish him well and like everyone else, our first thoughts are with Boris Johnson and his family during this time. But like everyone else, our attention has also turned to the question of who is running the country during this fast-moving crisis. Johnson has nominated Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, as his deputy when necessary. But that careful ambiguity has only sharpened the question of what authority and scope of action Raab actually has. That question will only intensify as major decisions approach, not least over the government's exit strategy from the coronavirus-enforced lockdown and whether the UK needs to venture where so many other countries have gone and write down formally what the rules of delegation and succession for the Prime Minister should be. As well as a hospitalised Prime Minister, we have a Parliament exiled from its normal home. But could the enforced shutdown at the Palace of Westminster force new ways of doing democracy? A new IFG paper this week explores the options, and we're going to be taking a closer look at that today. We'll be asking how a government functions when the person in charge is absent from the room where it happens, even if that room is a virtual one on Zoom, and how MPs can still hold that government to account. Before we start, a quick reminder about our new sister podcast, IFG Live. All the panels, talks, updates that we usually hold in our London offices are taking place online, and you can listen to them as podcasts. This week, we have brought together an expert panel to discuss the effects of the virus on the Brexit talks and whether it's time to extend the transition period. Find IFG Live on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get inside briefing, or at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So back to today's podcast. Hannah White, our Deputy Director, is back in the virtual building. Hi. Hello. We're going to talk later about your excellent paper on a virtual parliament, but I wondered if you'd just give us a sense of what MPs are doing right now. Well, I think they're probably doing what they would normally be doing in a parliamentary recess, which is doing a lot of constituency work. As far as I've heard, and and David can tell us about this later, that lots of MPs are experiencing a real flood of uh, queries from their constituents and and things they need help with relating to coronavirus. And so I think they'll be using the old-fashioned mediums of of telephone and uh, email and so on. And some, I I believe, are also holding virtual surgeries to, to help their constituents with these sorts of issues. Love to hear more about that. And Kath Haddon, our resident historian, is here. Hi, Kath. Hello. Kath, people keep harking back to Churchill's illness when he was Prime Minister. I've heard a lot about this. There are precedents, aren't there, for a Prime Minister's illness in office, but not always ones we want to emulate right now. No, it's certainly not what happened with Churchill. He had a stroke in 1953 and uh, it was kept quiet. And I mean, even the cabinet didn't hear the full story for a good couple of weeks. Uh, there was big worries because his, his supposed successor, Anthony Eden, was also off ill. So they were very worried whether or not Churchill would need to be replaced. And if so, how they could keep that from the press until Anthony Eden was back on his feet. Well, we don't think it's been kept, anything's been kept from the press at the moment. No. But we'll come on to whether the rules have got clearer or not um, uh, in, a bit later in this chat. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by David Liddington, who served as a minister for David Cameron and as Theresa May's de facto deputy, which goes exactly to the point of what we're discussing today. Hi, David. Hi, Bromin. I should also say that you're on the board of the IFG. Oh, yeah. Um, Transparency. (laughs) That's better to be assured. Yeah. No, thanks very much for joining us. Just uh, how have you been? Um, That's not a routine question these days. No, it's not. You know, those those sort of rather uh, hackneyed greetings, you know, how how are you? How do you do? And so on. They take on 
real force now because you're not sure what the answer's going to be. No, I mean, thankfully, so far, I and the immediate family are, are all are all fine. Um, but, you know, like everybody, you know, I've, you have relatives, uh, friends who have gone down with what might have been COVID-19, but, you know, nobody can be absolutely certain. Not at this point, no. And I'm sure you're in touch with former colleagues now in the thick of it. Can you give us a, just a, a quick sense of the pressure in Downing Street? Oh, I, I mean, there's no doubt that um, the, the, there's massive pressure. I mean, at, at all levels in politics, as Hannah said um, earlier, the the uh, we, we've got individual constituency MPs are, are certainly reporting a massive increase in constituency workload. And I think Parliament's just announced that sort of an extra... Uh, allowance to uh, give them the office support to enable them to cope with that in the in the in the in, in, in the short term, um, but government um, is under huge pressure. Let's not forget also that the Whitehall machine has been working very much with the dial to red for the past most of the past couple of years now because of the Brexit talks and the need for contingency planning. Absolutely, a point that people don't make enough. Yes. So they're all already in a situation where people have been worked pretty hard, you know, holidays have been junked and and, and, and so on. People work long hours. Um but having said that I, I think if you actually look at what different parts of the public sector have done, I mean, most obviously the uh, the Nightingale hospitals uh, being brought together as a project, but also mm. the way in which Rishi Sunak and the entire Treasury official team, led by Tom Scholar at PermSec, you know, have put together an extraordinarily ambitious business and employment support package in a matter of days. Yeah, so this is one of the big out. things the government has done already. One of the one of the successes. Yeah, and, and you know, and I think yeah. one, you know, you know, civil service and, and government sometimes gets a, a lot of flack, sometimes deservedly, but actually, you know, they they have shown that they are capable of really pulling out the stops and uh, delivering results. And it's it's when you've had you know uh, uh, able ministers and able civil servants working well together. Well, thanks very much for that. And we might well come back to some of those those points, particularly about the speed of it. Let's dig into our first subject then, which is about deputising for the Prime Minister. And at the time of recording, the Prime Minister is thankfully said to be in good spirits and his condition stable, which is very good news. But his transfer to intensive care did mean that he has actually stopped working by any normal definition. And that, in a sense, leaves a vacancy. Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is now taking over some of the duties but the government have been careful to emphasise the limits on this role. He's not a replacement prime minister. So what is his role and how will the government make it work? Kath, can you take us through the basics? Yes. So what they've done, I mean, first of all, they announced before uh, any of this happened, before Boris Johnson was even sick, that in the eventuality that he did so, so uh, Dominic Raab as first secretary of state would be the person to take over. I mean, we can get into the reasons why he chose Raab later. Um, what then happened more recently uh, after the Prime Minister got sick, he carried on working and they were keen to emphasise that he would continue doing that but would reduce some of his duties. But obviously when he went into to intensive care, that just wasn't possible. So Raab then was, uh, his role was triggered, but only to a limited extent. And at first they said uh, he'd take over where necessary. That led to quite a lot of confusion about what that actually mean, meant. And then uh, they eventually re- uh, put out a, a press conference saying that uh, what his role would involve 
um, and most importantly saying what it wouldn't involve. And it was things like saying he wouldn't be able to hire and fire ministers. Now, most constitutional experts would have expected that. He's not the prime minister. He's not been to the palace. He's not taking over that. Boris Johnson remains prime minister. Um, no, absolutely not. And that's that's really important constitutionally because that is the main basis of the power of the prime minister. He can control his cabinet because he can threaten to fire them uh, and he can hire new people. Um, but there were other things he would be doing, chairing meetings and so forth. But he also would remain in the foreign office working, not move into number 10. So again, that was kind of a signal out uh, that he wasn't going to be sort of a full stand in with all the sort of the nuances of the power of the prime minister. So it leaves a lot of questions, though. Yeah, let's go into just for a second the, the powers of the prime minister himself, because you know, he leads the cabinet, doesn't he? Which is key in our system of, of government, and people don't always understand what is meant by cabinet government. No, so we're we're governed by a collective of the cabinets uh, who are all ministers who advise the queen and who, as a collect, have to make collective decisions. So that's quite fundamental to how we work. It's very different from a presidential system where there's a huge number of executive powers invested in the uh, president. Um, Prime Minister is first among equals. Actually, most statutory powers, so, you know, written in law, are with secretaries of state, not with the prime minister. He doesn't have many of those sort of formal powers. A lot of what he has is both political power, because he's the leader of the party and because he's the prime minister. And this concept of the role of the prime minister has really grown in strength over the over the centuries. Um, but also because he is the main person who advises the Queen. So there's a lot of powers that the, the Queen ostensibly has, but doesn't actually exercise, that are exercised on her behalf by the Prime Minister. And that's the source of his power. David, you, you were uh, Theresa May's deputy. What, what did mm. you take that to mean? That I would have uh, the authority to act on her behalf where she asked me to do that, that she might sometimes take uh, a particular policy issue and just say, David, can you deal with this? Because I've got too much else on my plate. These two ministers are arguing, uh, please, can you come get them to agree to compromise, sort this out? Um, sometimes also um, she she would um, uh, not be able to chair a meeting she had intended to chair, uh, you know, National Security Council, Cabinet Committee or something, and I would chair chair that as a matter of course as the number two in the government. Um, but also when the the Prime Minister was absent, perhaps at an international conference uh, or some kind, then I would be sort of first on the list to take the call if there were an emergency of some kind to which a response was needed and, and needed immediately. And if she'd fallen ill, would you have expected to step in? Yeah. Yes. And I think I think that, that would have been the... Um, I assume it never, never, never happened, but uh, uh, and I don't remember, even remember any speculation about it. But I think that would have been the the understanding. But as was said a moment ago, you know, the the prime minister is the prime minister unless and until he or she resigns, and uh, therefore what the appointed deputy can do in terms of, of, of power is to exercise such authority as is delegated to him by. The PM and and the deputy's power and authority derives primarily from the fact that the prime minister, with the electoral mandate behind him, has entrusted, in this case, uh, Dominic Raab, to act on his behalf. 
We've had first secretaries of state, uh, Rob Steitel, and deputy prime ministers like John Prescott or Nick Clegg. Do these titles um, mean anything? Do they carry specified <coughs> they, powers? Um, they, do, they don't carry specif- uh, specified powers, but they, and I think they, my, my, my view, looking, looking back on my own time and looking at the experience of others who've been in this role, is that they help a bit in, in signposting to Whitehall very clearly that this man or woman is the designated deputy, you know, should the need for uh, a deputy arise. Um, but it just, it just just simplifies and clarifies matters. But actually, the substance is the key thing. And I think the substance is that the person who's entrusted with the deputy's role is known to have the confidence and uh, uh, trust of the prime minister, um, because that's that's what will get other members of the cabinet to, to take seriously this person's uh, authority. What about if um, big decisions come up? I mean, this is what a lot of the uh, other governments and uh, people in other countries are are saying. Um, So either big decisions in coronavirus, like the lockdown itself, or something to do with military action or so on. Where where does the limit of the deputy's um, authority stop? Where does does the cabinet overall really have to kind of forge? I mean, our system system, does rely on... Uh, the, the 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 prime minister being first amongst equals in in cabinet, and of course the the authority which individual prime ministers um, have uh, you know, varies. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's no a secret. I mean, you know that in Theresa May's time, you know, uh, particularly after the twenty seventeen election, the fact that she did not have a majority in parliament meant that she did not have perhaps the untrammeled authority that a Blair um, or you know, a Johnson now will have by virtue of having an unqualified electoral mandate, um, but uh, therefore you need to to sort of uh, you know, manage um, the, the the barons in the cabinet um, more closely than if you've got a clear parliamentary mandate of, of if it's a recent one in, as in this case. But to answer your questions, um, when it comes to security matters terrorist attacks, uh, military threats, there are very long established protocols already in place in government, because those could happen at any time. Um, so I mean, give you an actual example. I mean, last year, it's about half a day um, uh, for the 70th anniversary of, of D-Day. Uh, Theresa May was down in Portsmouth for the ceremonies with the Queen and all those other visiting heads of state. Um, you know, about half the cabinet was down with her. And I was in London and I I was dealing with I was having to deal with Prime Minister's questions, obviously, in, in Prime Minister's absence. But also I knew that um were a security emergency to arise, I would be um the one who, who would get the first call to respond to that, and I might have to do so very, very quickly, indeed, without the time to convene meetings of cabinet or anything like that. And I would be there and I would be in charge until you know, the moment that they could extract the prime minister from Portsmouth and she could be got back and, and, and take charge herself. Um, but, and that sort of working arrangement is in place at all times in Whitehall because you can't ever allow the country's guard to slip. So let us say for the sake of argument, there's a, a British ship. Uh, or plane hijacked somewhere in the world, God forbid, or a terrorist attack, then um, Dominic Raab would would have the um, authority to act swiftly in uh, because that was necessary to use the the, the, the terms of his his appointment. Um, but I think what everybody would hope 
that uh, those circumstances would not occur. When it comes to big decisions about, say, coronavirus, and uh, frankly, decisions on any other bit of domestic policy, I think we can forget about for um, the, the, the next couple of months at least. Uh, but, well, no, no, no one is going to come forward now. We've just had a budget, so that's done and dusted. Nobody's going to come forward with you know, a white paper on education reform just at the moment. Um, you know, the, and I haven't heard the words HS2 for a very long time. No, every every bit of energy in government is going to be focused on coronavirus. Um, and I think that the, the hope and expectation uh, amongst um, ministers and senior officials is clearly that the PM, you know, after a period of days or perhaps a few weeks, um, is able to um, start to come back to work. Obviously, that's a matter for him and his doctors. Uh, but the... So, 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 therefore, this 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 situation, this situ- where we we have a, a deputy acting. I mean, that seems to me a perfectly stable arrangement that can be sustained over uh, a number of weeks, if necessary. I, I was wondering what, what figure you were going to put at the end of that, Hannah. Can you give us? You were a civil servant for a time. Can you give us a sense of of how Number Ten is operating at the moment and what we know about the actual working conditions. Well, as as has been said. Dominic Raab isn't working from number 10. So he's got his private office in the FCO and it makes a lot of sense in many ways for him to to be working from there, not least because it looks like doesn't look like he's sort of trying to um, exercise some kind of power grab over number 10. I think number 10 itself, lots of people are working remotely. Some people are self-isolating. And of course, the risk in that situation is is for number 10 to be there without a kind of sit-in political boss. You know, you normally have a live-in political boss in number 10. But in many ways, you know, the cabinet secretary, the chief of staff, the SPADs are going to be continuing to do their jobs and do things for the prime minister and now for Dominic Raab in just the normal way that they would, except like all of us, they're dealing with the the perils of technology. Kath, how how do other countries respond to this and why have they found it so hard to understand um, the ambiguities, if you like, in, in the British position? Well, obviously, a lot, you know, a lot of countries have much more formal process for uh, either, you know, some kind of line of succession or for what should happen um, if, you know, their most senior uh, person, prime minister, president, whatever, is out of action. I mean, everyone looks at the US model, but that doesn't really compare here because, as they say, you know, the powers of the president are very different um, to the prime minister. But you look at um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who do have quite similar systems, they do at least have in place um, some guidance on what happens. I mean, most of the people involved who, you know, know the Constitution very well um, understand what would happen in this kind of eventuality in just the way that that David has been talking about. But it's not set out anywhere. And that's why a lot of people had confusion about, you know, exactly how empowered would he be? Would he actually be the Prime Minister? Um, you know, would he be going to the palace to advise the queen, all these kinds of things. Um, so we haven't sort of set it out in that kind of way. And that's something that, you know, after this incident, you can imagine that people will want to happen, uh, that we just set out. And we've got now the precedent of, of it happening with Dominic Raab. So being able to sort of say. Do you think that um, there should be clearer rules set out, that this is something the country now needs to do? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've said this a number of times when I uh, end up on the media sort of advising on what the constitutional position is. It shouldn't be me having to say this is how it happens and and almost sort of, you know, giving that guidance to a lot of people. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, should well, be national civics class. Exactly. But 
it, there should be somewhere. And that's the purpose of the cabinet manual, which is this document that sets out um, existing constitutional position. It, it doesn't codify it. It doesn't put it in law in any way, but it just sets out these are the precedents. This is what happened in the past. And I think we now need a, a lot more clarity about what can happen in, in these kind of circumstances. But that's different from, say, which is another thing you could do, putting in place some kind of permanent um, route of succession of, of designating who would be the person in any eventuality who would take over. I mean, David has pointed out that there's good reasons why you don't have that because different circumstances might mean it's different people. And the Prime Minister wants to keep the discretion over that. But if we did yeah. start to look uh, at the kind of um, precedence of the questions that this situation has set, this is something that Parliament mm. would want to uh, have a say on, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the issues that they've got at the moment is obviously Parliament not sitting. What I really want to turn to now is um, we've been. David was raising the question of, of, of decisions and decision making, and the big question coming up is the is the lockdown when to lift it. We've had heavy flagging that the review due next week, due by law uh, next week, is not going to say lift it. That the, the scientific advice is we're not there yet. But lots of people are now beginning to say that some groups are being hurt disproportionately by this. Children in poorer households, for example, or sufferers of illnesses which are not coronavirus. And David, I was just wondering how you think the government ought to go about making this decision about when when to begin easing the lockdown. Oh, I, I, I think... First of all, in, in terms of the, the, this first three weeks, um, it's been very clear to me from what the scientific and medical advisors have said on the record uh, in the last couple of days that there's, there's a, you know, I would say no prospect, uh, no realistic prospect to speak of that this is going to be eased after just three weeks. Um, it's clear from what the, the scientists are saying that we don't yet know whether we are at the peak or whether we are still moving towards it, let alone how rapidly the uh, epidemic will recede after the peak is reached. Is it going to plateau and then the number of new cases gradually fall? Um, or is there going to be, as we hope, a sharp diminution in the number of infections and then in the number of hospitalizations and deaths? Um, so until there's some, some certainty about those patterns, I think it would be responsible of government to uh, to ease up. What I do think that ministers um, can do is to uh, do the preparatory work, to have ministers, you know, at least around a virtual table of some kind, um, taking advice from their experts and discussing what various models of easing up, what various models for paths to normality might entail. Now, if we, for example, uh, open up schools first, um, you know, to how does this benefit the the workforce by enabling um, parents of school-aged children to go back to work? Um, but, but does that uh, increase the risk of new outbreaks uh, to a greater extent than we think is uh, acceptable. Uh, and so each option will need to be uh, assessed, thought through carefully, and ministers have the opportunity to discuss what the side effects might be before they can come up with an overall view. And it's a difficult question, isn't it? If Donald Trump put it at its bluntest, is, is the cure worse than the affliction? Um, and 
no one wanted to cast the initial decision at, of the lockdown in that way. Uh, it, it, was, it seems to be a, a sort of moral and political decision. Look, we, we cannot contemplate the number of deaths that the scientists are, are, are modelling. Uh, we have to do something urgent. There's obviously a lot of public support for that. And you've even got a lot of economists saying, um, even in pure, rather cold economic terms, uh, there was an economic case for that, of just the damage could be greater. But we're now getting into a much more difficult stage, aren't we, of... Um, of, of looking at the real cost, particularly as, as lockdown goes on, um, to the economy, to people's lives, to incomes, to the many people who, for one reason or other, just cannot, don't fall into one safety net or the other of, of, of the government. And do you think that the decision decisions in getting out of this could be even harder in a way than getting in? Yes, I think I think they are uh, very difficult indeed, and and of course that is compounded by the fact that this is a completely new virus. And even the top scientists in the world are learning. You know, we, we, we don't yet know enough about it. The evidence is gradually being amassed and assessed every day by the scientists around the world. But um, we, you know, we don't have a full understanding of this yet. So we don't have a clear view yet as to the risks of a second wave and whether that could be worse than a first wave, as was the case with the Spanish flu in 2018-19. Uh, or, or, or not, we don't know how long any immunity people who have had the virus will retain um, after their infection has, has ceased. So a um, lot of unknowns still. And, and actually, I think that government um, should be a bit more open than British. the British system of government normally tends to be about some of these inherent uncertainties and the very difficult balance that they are trying to strike. At the moment, I get the fact that they're, they're not wanting to complicate the message, particularly with Easter weekend, even, and, uh, please stay at home, abide by the rules, because the first priority has to be to, you know, to press the curve, get on top of this outbreak. When that is clearly under control, then is the time, it seems to me, to be sharing some of these dilemmas with the public and to have ideas about uh, the way back to normality. But yeah, at the end of the day, if the economy is not functioning and taxes are not being uh, collected, then we, we won't be able to pay for health system, social care. You, yeah, exactly. You, 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 you can run the tour. So you've got to, yeah. to, to do that. You've got to, you've got to think through what the balance of risk is. It's not just you know, the number of deaths. I'm not trying to... You know, in any way, you know, diminish the importance of, of that in a moral uh, sense as well as the economic impact. But the, you know, whether the health and care systems risk being overwhelmed. So part of the judgment for government will be at what stage do they think the NHS has the additional capacity that it would need to be able to cope with the potential risk of new outbreaks once restrictions on employment and social life were relaxed. And Hannah, this is, this is at heart a political decision, isn't it? In the best sense of the word, this is not one that official civil servants can take. No, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's really understandable, as David's been saying, that at the moment, um, to date, there's been a lot of emphasis put on the epidemiological evidence um, and what we do and don't understand about the virus and, and how decisions are being made from a health point of view. And as you say, in some ways, it's much simpler, the decision at the start to shut everything down. It was applying to everyone. There was no kind of 
um, creating different constituencies with different advantages over others, different parts of the economy. It was just a sort of blanket decision. But the decisions are coming, which are all about balancing the health uh, considerations, what we understand about the epidemiology with all the other factors. And although the um, advisors can advise at the end of the day, as always, it's the ministers who are just going to have to decide. And what's really interesting in this context, I think, is that we have a simultaneous situation of all these countries around the world where politicians are being presented with these decisions and they will all take slightly different decisions and we will see in real time how those counterfactuals play out. And I think that will be very tricky, actually, for some governments in different places who are seen to have made better or worse decisions uh, for their own countries and their own people. It's worth remembering as well, I mean, you know, it was only a few short weeks ago that the government was getting flack in the opposite direction for not having gone into lockdown early enough. So, you know, that will still be a very strong memory for it. So what would you, Kat, you've got a lot of thoughts on the government's communications in this. If you, if you, if you listen to what David's just been describing, you know, these difficult choices coming up and perhaps a very long, maybe couple of years until there's a vaccine or other medicine that can combat this. How, how would you advise the government to uh, shape its communications now? Well, I, we, you know, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, that with the crisis, transparency and openness are crucial because trust uh, in the decision making and, you know, um, uh, believing that the government and everything that they're saying is being as open as possible is really important for making sure that the measures you're then bringing in are working. Um, And also, this is something that, you know, the country are discussing. Uh, You can guarantee that all across the land, people are having conversations of the same that would be happening in governments of you know, what is the, uh, the pressures of staying in lockdown and, uh, you know, how important it is to do it versus, you know, what are going to be the sort of economic costs for people. So everyone is very well aware of that. And I think I think David's right that the government might, you know, should be able to find some way to have that conversation more openly, uh, to at least start talking about the, the issues involved, the sort of the dilemmas that it's thinking about. And yes, it can place emphasis on the evidence. And they've talked about the fact that next week uh, they expect to have more information to be able to start thinking about those choices. But it's also about talking about, this, as you say, the moral aspects to it, as well as the, the scientific components of this decision, because then it will be less of a shock to the public when uh, you know, a decision in either direction is made. Well, we'll come back to all of that because it will get only more pressing. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, very likely next week and the weeks beyond. Let me turn finally then to um, Parliament. Hannah, uh, you, you've been writing about this and this this uh, terrific paper you've put out this week. Um, Parliament isn't sitting. What's the way it can have a say? Well, Parliament isn't sitting, the, the, the we're not seeing the, uh, any business in the chamber, but actually, I think more than in any previous recess that I'm aware of, committees, and particularly Commons committees, are still sitting. Um, and they're able to do that during a parliamentary recess, and they are taking evidence. And sometimes they're sitting, um, and we've got the technology for those sittings to be broadcast live. Sometimes those sessions are being pre-recorded and then put out on the internet. But I think that's a really important thing that Parliament is continuing to do. And I understand there are also some discussions going on behind the scenes about whether anything can be done about parliamentary questions when Parliament isn't sitting, because normally um, the those don't really get answered by government during the recess. But maybe we can set some different deadlines so that Parliament would 
actually continue to get answers to written questions during the recess. How have the select committees been working? Because there have been three uh, this week, haven't they? Looking exactly, that's the impact of coronavirus. We have the, the, the Home Affairs, the Foreign Affairs and the Treasury. And, and how, yeah. how do they actually do this? How do they take... Uh, um, so before so Parliament on. rose for the recess, it agreed that it was going to be okay for MPs to participate virtually in sittings. So for people to be uh, on the telephone or on uh, via video link, um, participating in a parliamentary proceeding, so that committees could actually take evidence from witnesses and do what they often do best, which is get a lot of information out. Uh, from the people who are involved, the ministers, but also the uh, officials and the um, experts in this situation. Um, and I think that the that's been really valuable for the media who've covered those sessions and been able to bring out a lot more detail about what's going on and the decisions that have been made as a result of committee activity. And how much of this really counts as an innovation? What, what are they doing that they they weren't doing, say, three months ago? So being able to take decisions virtually isn't totally novel. Uh, the Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards um, about 10 years ago was given the power to do that so that it could work more rapidly. Uh, but actually conducting whole evidence sessions uh, virtually is novel. Um, and we're, there's also a lot of debate now about other innovations which might be able to be brought in after the uh, recess when Parliament returns. Things like virtual participation in chamber business, so MPs being able to ask questions via video link from their constituencies and have those answered by ministers. You'd have to have some other changes around that. You'd have to th have things like speakers lists, which we haven't had in the past in the Commons. Uh, they are used in the Lords. Um, but MPs would need to know in what order they were going to be allowed to ask their questions so that they could be there and ready to do it at the time that their question came up. But can, can they really? I mean, there's um, been a lot in the press that the chair of the Commons Home Affairs Committee has written to Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, many times asking her to come. And people say, where, where is she? Uh, there's rather a lot people would like to ask about policing during the coronavirus uh, and so on. Um, they don't have any more powers to compel her to speak, do they? They don't. And I mean, that's not novel at all. Um, I don't mean particularly in relation to the Home Office, but select committees often do ask ministers to appear. And for one reason or another, ministers resist that. So I don't think that's particularly necessarily related to the current crisis. That'll just be to do with the availability of that particular minister at this time. Well, Kath, what do you think? I mean, in what sense is she not available at the time? Ever the whole country is available, um, at least to answer questions on this kind of thing. Does it fit in with the communication strategy that you've been describing? Well, it, it does. It is starting to seem a bit strange, just in as much as obviously policing is such a, a large component of this. I mean, the government are trying to make sure that there are a limited number of key ministers who are sort of leading it. So there's, you know, continuity of who's doing uh, the various press conferences, and they're all the ones who are leading the major um, cabinet committees on this. But if there's another issue in it, which is that you don't have any women who are... I was just going to say, it's very, it's very striking, very male. Yeah, yeah uh, and I think yeah, and I think that affects people's perception of the decision-making as well, of how much are people thinking about the different uh, aspects of, of what they're doing at the moment and, and would like to see a woman's, you know, prominent somewhere in the decision making. It doesn't mean that they're not behind the scenes, but it's, you know, it's a gap that people have been noticing. So, David, which of these changes are you comfortable with and which are you really, frankly, not comfortable with if they were permanent? I'm very happy with the changes to select committees. I mean, when, when I was a minister, I, I got terribly frustrated if I was having to submit a document uh, for perhaps from Europe for scrutiny by Parliament. And 
uh, and they say, oh, well, we've got to have that before SS. And actually, the standing orders have for a long time allowed select committees to meet and deliberate to call witnesses during recess. And I think that going online with this experience, well, I think encourage them to do that more frequently and also to avoid having to reschedule committee sessions and stop calling in witnesses if um, there's a, a big vote or debate in the chamber, that it'll be easier to to do to do both things if you can talk to witnesses online and also talk to witnesses in remote parts of this country and witnesses who are overseas without requiring them to travel. So actually, there's an opportunity here for committees to uh, to develop um, a, a bigger audience for their activity, but also to draw evidence from a wider range of witnesses than in the past. When it comes to the chamber, I agree with the speaker um, uh, about looking at ways in which you can get back uh, parliamentary questions, uh, government statements, urgent questions to ministers, um, even while the, the restrictions are in place. I think it's much more difficult when you get to legislation. I could see how bill committees with a limited number of MPs you could perhaps make work online, but it would be very difficult to reproduce the pattern of intervention and response that makes a good parliamentary debate. Because that it's those interventions that often enable MPs to really press ministers and opposition spokesmen about the detail of their their policy and to get behind sort of the line to take that, that can very frequently be wheeled out. And, and incidentally, very, all that is televised, so you know people can see, and yeah. see, see the government being pressed on this thing. So I yes, can absolutely I see, see well, that I've, something I've would done be it. Lost. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've had to had to had to deal with that myself. And you know, when I was taking through. You know, European legislation, I mean, we'd probably have half my speech time hmm. used up with interventions from backbench MPs from all parts of the House. Um, but I think I'm very uneasy if we move to a system of um, voting online. I mean, both of us, I'm just uncomfortable with the idea that you can be physically away from the chamber apart from the you know, very... Uh, to particular circumstances, but it has been established for um, uh, women MPs on maternity leave. But but also the loss of the the informal opportunities that voting in person gives an MP to grab a minister without any civil servants being there. And many times, you know, in my time in Parliament, I've been lobbied by MPs who've come, all parties, come up to Ben Maia when I was a minister, when I was a backbencher, if I couldn't get the meeting with a minister that I wanted about a constituency issue, I'd go and get that minister when he, he was on his own in the voting lobby without the officials to protect him. So I can I can absolutely see the opportunity that that, that, that gives, and that's that that, that that is really important. The MPs might find other ways. Hannah, this is you. You've been looking at the, the the question of digital voting, haven't you? Yeah, and I think that David's right that the legislation is the hardest thing to to think about how to do online, and I think that poses a real question for the government you know is it going to continue with its legislative program as planned um, or is it going to um, sort of curtail its ambition for the next period because actually legislating involves a lot of voting voting is something which at the moment involves a lot of close contact between people as David says there are some really tricky questions about doing it remotely lots of uh, legislatures around the world do use electronic voting systems, lots of those still involve being in the chamber but pressing a button. 
But, you know, should we be looking? And I think we really should. It, I mean, notwithstanding the sorts of uh, 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 worries that, that David has, you know, in a situation like this should make us think, well, look, have we, have we thought this through carefully enough? Are there things which we could do to enable voting to happen uh, without everyone being present in the chamber? Because otherwise, is, there's a real risk that if Parliament can't sit and can't legislate for a long period of time, the operation of Parliament is going to be seriously impeded. We'll, we'll again come back to that possibly in a future report as well. So let's just have a, a last thoughts on the subject of Keir Starmer, uh, Labour leader, uh, becoming Labour leader at a point when he can't have a parliamentary platform and when the agenda uh, with all its richness, has been taken over by one topic. What what uh, what advice would you give him, Cass? Let's start with you. Well, I mean, it is a very tricky. We've talked about this in the past: the difficulty of managing the right tone um, of both being supportive to the government in you know the midst of a national crisis, of making sure that he looks like he is concerned mostly with the national interest, but also being challenging, scrutinising the government. Uh, and, and making sure that that part of his role uh, he's doing. And he, I mean, we've seen a lot of that just in the few days since he became uh, Labour leader, and he's very much focused on that being uh, the tone that comes out from him. And it goes to what we were talking earlier about exit strategies. He has said that he thinks the government needs to publish its strategy. He understands they can't yet say, you know, what will happen we need to see the evidence, all of that sort of stuff. But he wants to hear what their thinking is. So he's he's already trying to push that. But yes, Parliament... It might, it might be a good and obvious point, but in a way it might be a bit unfair. The government, you know, can't in a way can't have an exit strategy very clearly mapped out at this point. No, absolutely. And and you can argue he is just... He's he's jumping on something that a lot of people are talking about and it's it's easy for him to sort of talk about it in those general terms as being a strategy rather than getting into the moral difficulty of what you actually do. Uh, which is a far harder question. But yes, he's lacking some of those opportunities. I mean, a really interesting question about if you're talking about a virtual chamber is how would you manage prime minister's questions? And I mean, even if they were in the chamber and it was socially distant, it would be a very, very different feel um, to prime minister's questions and how that normally occurs. Uh, it would be anyway, given the seriousness of what's going on. Uh, but then add in the fact that you'd have a near empty chamber or you do it virtually. It's it's really interesting yeah, to think how that would operate. The atmosphere of the, of, of the Commons Chamber is is a, a cockpit of everyone jammed up yeah. against each other shouting. Kath, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, Hannah, your tips on Kia. Well, I think I think I would just say that it, this comes down also. Uh, a lot to what the government is going to try to do in this period. As, as David said right at the beginning, you know, it's highly likely that, you know, there's not going to be a very significant domestic agenda beyond coronavirus in the next couple of months because most of, of government is very busy dealing with coronavirus and lots of resource, even that was deployed to things like, which were previously very high priorities like Brexit negotiations, is being redeployed uh, onto coronavirus. So in some ways that simplifies uh, Keir Starmer's job I think. Um, if the government does try to press ahead with a really full legislative programme, which obviously it wanted to have because it has been elected with this significant majority on a manifesto with you know things that they wanted to achieve and push through, that does complicate the job for Keir Starmer, I think. I mean, clearly uh, there will be opportunities lost to him um, to grab the limelight and to demonstrate he's changing from his predecessor. But I think there are opportunities for him 
as well. I mean, the first one is to do what we've, we've seen him doing, which is to present himself as a very different type of opposition leader and the Labour Party now as a very different type of opposition and to re-establish in the public's mind the model of you know, a responsible constitutional opposition whom they should be able to trust with going into government in the future. And actually... Yeah, so he's done this with his cabinet, by very choosing a new, cabinet. very, very different cabinet. And at the moment, it's early days, at the moment he seems to be playing it quite skillfully in terms of being responsible, saying, for example, that he, if the government, on advice, decided it would... Uh, support uh, additional restrictions. He would he would back that, uh, but but also reserving the right to ask difficult questions. And I know I, I not for me to advise from the Labour Party, but but you know I'd have thought he he will he will look for the sorts of questions that the public are going to be asking themselves. Um, so I think that is is where he will. He will want to be. But he then has the opportunity now with what's a very new front bench team uh, for them to really get read into their briefs without having to pretend to be experts on it from day one and to be ready to come up with the difficult questions, but also the the policy ideas of their own when politics does start to return to normal. And he's also got the space to try and sort out the internal problems of the Labour Party that frankly won't mean much to most people who don't take more than a passing interest in politics most of the time, but actually will be very important if Keir is to have effective control of his own party. Very, very good point. And he's, he's got some months of, uh, as you said, of, of peace in a way to get on with that, and perhaps not internal peace, but uh, free from the cut and thrust of of Westminster. Well, look, thank you all very much. Thank you to Hannah White, Kath Adden, a huge thank you to David Liddington. Real pleasure to have you with us. And thank you all for listening too. We're going to be back with Inside Briefing next week. And our new sister podcast, IFG Live, is bringing you, as I said, the debates, discussions and conversations, which we were holding in our building and now delighted to be holding online. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one, and you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, is full of lots of comment and reports, not all of it about coronavirus, I'm glad to say, but most of it is. Do check it all out. And until then, I hope you will enjoy the Easter weekend and the glorious sunshine that is descending for at least part of it, part of the country. See you next week.